Once you question the food, you question everything. That's a quote from Rory Feek, a farmer and filmmaker in the growing homesteading movement, which is seeing numbers of Americans reject processed foods and rediscover how to grow what's on their plates, sustaining their communities in the process. Feek made this comment at the inaugural Modern Homesteading Conference in Idaho, and my guest today was there to take it all in. Olivia Rheingold is an American journalist and a staff writer at the Free Press. Her latest story is Home is Where the Revolution Is. Olivia Rheingold is my guest today on Lean Out. Olivia, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the program. As soon as I read your reporting last week, I knew I wanted to talk to you. I'm That's fascinated. so kind. Thank you. I'm fascinated by the homesteading movement. I've been tracking it for some years. I made a radio documentary about it, touched on it a little bit in my book. And at one point, it seemed to me like this was the secret fantasy of every overworked mm-hmm. urban woman <laughs> that I know. Sure. Yeah. Land, raise chickens, grow vegetables, make some homemade jam. This still sounds kind of delightful to me. How did you come to this topic? This was actually an assignment. And to be quite honest, I mean, the the assignment was really rooted in a conference. So I went to the first ever modern homesteading conference. There are obviously other conferences on this topic, but this was the first one of this nature. And I guess my philosophy is that conferences aren't really news. And so when I got the assignment, I was kind of like, you know, obviously it's an honor to get to travel for reporting in general. So I was like, I get to go to Idaho. That's great. But what is the story here? And then I showed up and I was like, oh my gosh, this is quite a story. I mean, it, it was actually the story that has probably made me think the most out of anything I've reported on weirdly because um, I think I'm used to speaking to people who are rather different from myself or on topics that just I'm things I'm not experiencing myself, like speaking to someone in the throes of drug addiction or things like that. But sometimes the simplest questions are the ones that go the deepest and food and just where does it come from actually turned out to be just expansive. Um, The kicker in the piece, the final quote comes from kind of a celebrity of the homesteading movement. His name is Rory Feek. And he gave a closing speech at this dinner. And he said something like, once you question the food, you question everything. And that is certainly what I heard from people at this conference that food is really the starting point. Um, once you start to wonder where does my food really come from, it leads to a lot of other questions that honestly, it it was both inspiring to me seeing this in action and anxiety provoking, realizing how little... I guess how fragile the modern system can be and how little we really think about a lot of our choices. Mm. It's, it, it is so, so interesting. And um, 
paint a picture for us. You you arrive at this modern yeah. homesteading conference. What what did you find when you got there? Well, the first thing I saw when I got there uh, were these baby chicks and and kids kind of playing with these these um there were animals all around i guess i should say there were sheep on display there was an expo on how to shear your sheep and then i'm kind of looking around trying to figure out where to start because it is pretty overwhelming like there are women selling vials of herbal medicine that they claim can cure the common cold and then but eventually i stumble upon this hog that is um, I, I don't know what the respectful term is or the deceased. The hog has been, uh, I, I am embarrassed to say I showed up maybe 15 minutes late and I heard that the butcher actually shot the hog. I don't know how public it was. I think I heard he like took the hog into a trailer. But anyway, at this point, the hog is is dead and is hanging from, it's hoisted up by a tractor. And I mean, I was just, seeing the way people were staring at this carcass and taking notes intently and drawing diagrams and shouting out questions like, tell us about your knives to the butcher and and things like that. Um, And not wincing at all when the head came off and the organs came out. I, I was, I, um, A, I was, it made me think a lot about myself and why is this so hard for me. I mean, the only time I looked away was when the hog's head came off. But these are people who, <laughs> um, these are people who their relationship to food and to the animals they raise is just totally different. It's very respectful. And there's there's just a different understanding there. But I um I was really taken by this this family. I believe they have six kids. They're called the Neelys. I, I think they're from Enterprise, Washington. They're in the story, and they were they were watching. And a lot of the boys were really excited. Like first of all, I could see they had little. All of the boys had knives clipped into their waistbands, which I loved. Like I, you know, they clearly have a lot of independence back on their homestead and they were whispering to their dad they were like dad that's the part we always get tripped up on like when i don't know the butcher was talking about unloading the liver or something like that and um and when i spoke to them they really part of their motivation for behind this lifestyle was because they think it's really good for kids to have responsibility and to help provide for the family and if they want the house to be heated in the winter, they need to help cut down firewood. So it was overwhelming. It was an overwhelming scene. But as soon as I kind of lingered, I don't know, there were there were just so many interesting people there. Mm. And Olivia, what did you learn about the demographics of this movement? Who is drawn to it? So... The data available is pretty limited. Um, There is one study that surveyed maybe around 4,000 homesteaders. And most of the people I spoke to at the conference uh, seemed to be conservative. But I was surprised to see in this data set that actually about 44% of homesteaders 
at least according to the survey, identify as conservative. And then maybe about a quarter are liberal and then 20% are independent. Um, and then there are, there are a few other affiliations too. So it's hard to know. I'm, I mean, I spoke to some people who, you know, there did seem to be a lot of vaccine skepticism there for, and for what it's worth that just happens to have a strong political affiliation in the U.S. these days. But there wasn't, I think like a lot of people, I think these are sometimes politically homeless people too, I guess I would say. People who, you know, maybe are vaccine skeptical, but at the same time, maybe have more like liberal fiscal ideas, like totally believe in a livable wage or more progressive concepts like that. So I think it is a politically mixed group. Uh, but but at the same time, so the average homesteader is probably under 50, married and religious, and a lot of them are very active voters. It's so interesting because when I when I started following this movement, um, it really did seem that certainly there were some religious women, some conservative women involved, but it really did seem to be led by women with leftist politics. I'm thinking... Mm-hmm of the author of the seminal book, Radical Homemakers, um, that sparked this movement in the U.S. This is Shannon Hayes. But it does seem lately like there's increasing interest from the right, so much so that Mother Jones recently published a warning piece arguing that talking about the industrialized food supply and its impact on your gut and the planet is now a right-wing position. What's your sense of, of where the thrust of this movement is coming from now on the political spectrum? It's interesting how... Well, I was just, as you were speaking, I was just thinking how it is the way when I, when I started reporting on this, I mean, the first thing you do as a reporter is you read other people's coverage. And I found a lot of pieces kind of, I think, confusing the homesteader for a more paranoid, isolated prepper type, or at least according to, you know, the media. I think a lot of stories were grouping these to really stereotypes together. But at the same time, I mean, I live in Brooklyn and there's definitely an undercurrent of homesteading, even in cities now where most, it's not uncommon for a city dweller or millennial professional to at least have a tomato plant and maybe plans to grow their own herbs. And so, you know, I think everyone has to eat. And it's pretty easy once you dig into where does my food come from? Is the box, the green box labeled as organic, really organic? I think when you look into this, I think everyone has alarms about certain aspects of our food system. But I have noticed that at least in terms of the coverage, this is being portrayed as you know, maybe a puritanical movement or some sort of regressive movement. Um, I think perhaps people are also looping this in with the trad wife phenomenon. Um, but the people I spoke to, some of them were culturally like very Western and wearing, you know, Wrangler jeans or whatever. But a lot of people, for what it's worth, looked like my neighbors in Brooklyn, like very quote unquote, cool tattoos, you know, nose rings. And I think had a lot of, you know, met a lot of very ambitious women, a lot of 
entrepreneurial women. And so I don't think this stereotype and, and these are also people who are very active in their community, I guess is what I will say. They're not hoarders preparing for doomsday. They are invested in the future. They're invested in the next generation, rearing leaders of the next generation. And oftentimes people, I could not believe, I tried to press people on this. It's It was so benevolent. I couldn't believe it. Um, but people were just like, yeah, part of the reason why I want to be a homesteader is because I want to be able to give things away. I want, you know, I can tell there are people in my community who are hurting and I want to be able to give food away. And so that is definitely not the proper stereotype of someone hoarding simply for themselves who, you know, when push comes to shove, they're going to close their doors and keep everything, keep all the resources for themselves. These are people who are involved in their community. You know, 90%, according to that study, are active voters. So I don't think the portrayal uh, writing about this as some sort of far-right phenomenon really holds. Now, one of the criticisms of this movement um, from the very beginning, I mean, starting with the organic food movement, is that this is this is something for privileged people by privileged people. And certainly when you look in Canada, the big barrier that you come up against when you start contemplating this lifestyle is the prohibitive cost of land. Is this mainly an economically privileged movement or or is that a mistake to think about it that way? Yeah, I most people I spoke to were rather concerned about money and I didn't get the sense that money was infinite to them. And some people told me, you know, of course land, I mean I I land like that I'm just I'm just imagining like if I had to purchase land, I'm just like, wow, how do you even how do you even do that? No, it is it is daunting and of course you need resources, but at the same time my God, I mean, I went to buy a box of strawberries maybe a month ago, and the organic ones happened to look, they these were just the exact kind of straw. This was up my alley. I was like, I need these strawberries. <laughs> and I went to purchase them, and they were like $14.99. And so anyway, a lot of people I spoke to, obviously, I put them back, and I was like, okay, I, I will get these less yummy ones. But um, a lot of people I spoke to were like organic food is so expensive, you know, to eat well is so expensive. And so it takes money to lead like any kind of lifestyle these days. Just everything is expensive. I think people often talk about just it's so expensive to eat well. And so a lot of families I spoke to, I think, did this as a cost saving measure. And that family I mentioned earlier, the Neelys, they actually started butchering their own hogs because I I think they said it's something like I think at least a thousand dollars to have a butcher come in and slaughter their hog for them. And so most people I spoke to were definitely concerned about money. I did not meet anyone where this is like a hobby and you know their their homestead is outside of Aspen. These are working folk. It is interesting, too, this is a point that you made in your piece, that, that this first conference comes right after the pandemic, right after COVID. Right. And we have seen this exodus of people leaving cities during the pandemic. What factors, when you think about that broader trend, what factors do you see driving that trend? 
The main thread I found connecting the pandemic to the homesteading boom was really people who started to... These were people who, like I mentioned regarding vaccines, who often had questions about COVID vaccines or the back and forth regarding mask mandates and told me that once they started to question those things, they became more open to the idea that maybe the experts aren't right about everything, or maybe the things that, you know, I'm being told are settled are actually more open for debate. And so that is the main thread there. Most of the people I spoke to, I did not meet, I met a few people who were, you know, leading radically different lives. Um, The timeline didn't really line up with the pandemic, but I only met a few people who, you know, had stories of growing up in a city or the suburbs. Um, For the most part, the people I met grew up in rural areas, but didn't necessarily live according to the way they were raised until the pandemic. I think a lot of people were loosely committed to this way of life, but then really, you know, did things like go to this conference and have goals of increasing their self-sufficiency after the pandemic. One one question I always have with this lifestyle is the social isolation that can come with living this way, particularly those who are doing it off grid, you know, mm-hmm. living far from your neighbors and also taking positions that are less mainstream. Um, I know I saw this firsthand when I went to Ireland to report on the moneyless man. And and my big takeaway from from that story was was that the big challenge of this lifestyle is, is social isolation. Did your interview subjects have any thoughts on on that challenge? No, I got the sense that they were actually really emotionally fulfilled. I didn't get into, you know, are you lonely? Like, <laughs> are you ever sad? But what people told me is that they found this lifestyle so much more meaningful than the routine of Uber Eats and Amazon Prime and overnight deliveries that we're told, you know, are going to make our life more convenient and better. I think these are these are people who told me that yes, homesteading made their life harder, but that's a good thing and that when all of the friction is taken out of your life, you actually feel quite empty. And so I don't know I mean, I'm kind of extrapolating here. They might feel isolated, but I think a homesteader might say like it's okay for things to be hard sometimes. Mm. And and just to close, Olivia, you've been doing some really interesting work at the Free Press, including your last piece about the Crow Nation search for a new generation of warriors. Why is it so important right now to get out into America and to tell the stories of Americans? Well, I mean, that's such a big question. That's definitely what I believe in. I don't know how much you know about my background, but I come from a more mainstream background where I did some reporting for NPR and then was also at Politico for a little bit. And I definitely just felt very bored. Like I felt like, oh, I'm supposed to call this Democrat right now to get a quote about 
how bad Republicans are. And then I'm supposed to call the Republican to get a quote about how bad Democrats are. And I guess I would just say that people surprise you. People surprise you and by and large are just so much more reasonable than you would think if you operate according to, you know, if you believe everything you read, I guess is what I would say. And um, it just is, is crazy. Like when I told a lot of my friends, you know, I was going to Idaho for this story. They were like, huh? Or like, oh, sorry. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, it's beautiful there, you guys. And it's, there's everything you need. There's delicious food. And people, I think, just often don't even know what's out there or think that, you know, the heartland is dying or something. But, you know, there are lovely, there are lovely places everywhere. And I think people really lack curiosity and also lack imagination about I think they assume they know how people feel about things and people surprise me every day. And the country is just stunning. So I don't know. I encourage people wherever you think you know the best or a place you're writing off. I just encourage people to go there if you ever get the chance. Well, it was such a fascinating story. And Olivia, so great to have you on to get to talk about it today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. This was great. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Oh, 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 oh,